We want to welcome everyone to the Congress of Neurological Surgeons podcast. Today, we will discuss the paper, Cerebral Revascularization for Aneurysms in the Floater-Rotted Area. We have the lead author and the senior author of the paper here with us, and also discussants. I would ask everybody to introduce themselves. Dr. Shaker, please. Uh, I'm Dr. Lollingham Shaker, uh, Vice Chair and Professor of Neurological Surgery, University of Washington. I'm the senior author of this paper, which is uh, titled Cerebral Revascularization for Aneurysms in the Flow Diverter Era. And there are um, additional co-authors, Dr. David Strauss, Harley Brito da Silva, Lynn McGrath, Michael Levitt, Louis Kim, Basuraj Gokhe and Jason Barber, who is the statistician. Uh, the summary of the paper will be given by Dr. Brito da Silva, and I'll be answering the questions. Dr. Da Silva? Yes. Uh, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm uh, along with uh, Dr. David Strauss, one of the leading uh, authors of the paper. I've been here a, a research fellow under uh, Dr. Shaker. I'm a fully trained neurosurgeon in Germany, and um, I'm very happy to be with everyone today here. Okay, um, this is Rose Du. I'm one of the discussants, uh, faculty discussants for this podcast. Um, a, um, I am the director of cerebrovascular surgery at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And Hi, we have two other uh, resident uh, discussants, if you can introduce yourselves. Yes, my name is Adrienne Morris. I'm one of the PGY6 neurosurgery residents at Stanford interested in going into cerebrovascular surgery. Hi, and I am Jonathan Pace, uh, PGY5 at University Hospital Cleveland Medical Center. Uh, I'm the moderator of the session. I'm uh, Dr. Mati. Tina Stippler, neurosurgeon at BI in Boston. And I would uh, please invite next Dr. Prito de Silva to give a summary of the paper. Okay, thank you so much. So uh, this uh, paper was uh, idealized by uh, previous papers, uh, many previous papers that uh, Dr. Shaker had uh, written in the subject of cerebral uh, revascularization for many other subjects, uh, among them uh, uh, brain tumors, uh, skull base uh, tumors, and brain aneurysms. So this is a subject that he had a, a huge interest for many, many years. So he decided that to study then if the treatment of uh, brain aneurysms uh, uh, since the advent of the flow diverter era has changed some of the indications and, uh, or the subset of patients that you had uh, for 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 cerebral revascularization. So, uh, as you well know, as all of you know very well, uh, there are seven different uh, flow diversion devices in the market, and most of them have been available for the last uh, seven years. So, when we when we looked at our populations of uh, patients treated uh, in our department uh, from uh, July uh, 2005 until July 2015, uh, we were able to find a, a total of uh, 2,409 uh, aneurysm patients treated in our department. And 
we uh, then were able to look at how many of these patients actually uh, were submitted to uh, cerebral bypasses. So uh, of the 2,409 patients with uh, brain aneurysms, uh, one, uh, uh, until 2005, July 2005, uh, 1,061 were in the what we considered with the pre-flow diversion uh, era, and uh, 1,348 uh, were treated in the what we call then the post-flow diversion era, and, and these uh, and these uh, 2,409 uh, 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 patients. 130 patients require cerebral bypass treatment. Uh, we, uh, 31% were uh, low flow patients, 37% uh, were moderate uh, flow uh, bypasses, I'm sorry, and 32% uh, we used the high flow bypasses. Uh, in the table one, uh, we actually uh, showed in our paper some of the characteristics of these pre Low diverted and post-low diverted groups. You know, so if we go to the to the to the table one of our paper, we'll see uh, some of the demographics of these patients uh, divided in in among age, sex, uh, if the if the aneurysm was ruptured or unruptured, and you see also uh, the initial hunting heads of these patients. Most important for the discussion of this paper also, we were able to look also in the uh, pre-op uh, modified uh, ranking scale of all these patients. And we saw that uh, there was a, a, a statistic, the significant difference between uh, the, the uh, of the uh, pre-op and the post, uh, the, the pre-op in the pre-flow diverted era and the post-op flow diverter era between the, the, these two groups. Uh, and also the, so for instance, uh, in the 76% uh, of the, uh, uh, of the, play, the patients had, uh, um, I mean 9% of the patients in the flow, in the, in the pre-flow diverter era had a, a modified ranking score lower than three and then the 88% had in the flow, uh, post-flow diverter had a, uh, 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 18% had a, uh, in the flow for, in the post-flow uh, diverter. Uh, so uh, most of the patients, uh, when you look at the table two of the characteristics of the, the, of the aneurysms, uh, the characteristics uh, change. Uh, uh, there were no statistic uh, big difference between the two groups. You see uh, patients ranging from uh, ACA aneurysms to basilar tip to to, basal, to vestibular basilar system to ICA. Uh, the sizes, the standard deviations were basically the same. And 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 if you look then to Figure One. And that's when something really interesting happens is that you see in the figure one in the the distribution of the of the of the of these aneurysms uh, shows that uh, we have a group of patients who have uh, higher now in the flow the post flow diverter have a higher 
uh, modified rank and scale than we used to treat uh, in the pre-flow diverter. That was the one we can see uh, in figures one, two, and three, the functional status of these patients. And we tried to illustrate our paper with uh, three different cases. One case was a failed bypass uh, with, um, in which uh, the, the patient had uh, two unsuccessful procedures uh, many years ago, a SCA to MCA bypass, and later on uh, 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 it was submitted to an interventional uh, uh, procedure. And, and I thought, we thought, uh, Dr. Shaker thought that it was, this was, was a very interesting illustrative case for a situation where you have to do a, a cerebral revascularization because of uh, previous uh, uh, failed treatment. And the second case consisted a, of a, uh, a very difficult and complex aneurysm with, um, in, the, in the vestibular basilar system uh, with a very difficult uh, treatment options. And then uh, after consulting with uh, colleagues in the department, the, the decision was made to proceed with this also cerebral revascularization. And um, the, the third case was a case uh, who had a, 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 the, the cerebral revascularization was necessary because of, of uh, complications of, uh, of, of, of off-label treatment of uh, PED. So these were the three cases that we gave uh, as an example of uh, some of the important uh, cases that we will always continue to appear in. in. Right. Uh, Shaker, let me summarize uh, the paper and then we can quickly go to the questions. Um, the main, the gist of the paper is that what has happened to revascularization for aneurysms, which was considered to be an important te a surgical technique after the advent of flow diverters, which of course have made a big difference, I think. And uh, this is a serial series of patients, so it's not a randomized uh, study of any sorts, just looking at experience at one center. Uh, and to summarize what was found, uh, essentially we found that patients are being now referred uh, after failure of uh, flow diversion or uh, frequently uh, the patients who are coming to us are in worse condition than they were before. Previously, you know, we would see a patient, for instance, with a paraclinal aneurysm and the decision would be made to treat it with a bypass uh, if it was a fusiform. But now we always rely on flow diversion as the first uh, measure of choice. So we've illustrated uh, this with uh, three different cases. Uh, one patient with uh, success, initially thought to be successfully treated paraclinal aneurysm, which in fact turned out to be a failure. Second was a very complex vertebral basal aneurysm, and the third was a complication uh, which followed after off-label treatment of middle cerebral artery aneurysm. Uh, and I think that uh, the strategies for treatment of aneurysms with flow diversion are still evolving. However, uh, I, think, I think that there's still a role for microsurgery, particularly bypass surgery with a number of these complex aneurysms. So at this point, I can uh, start to answer some questions. 
Okay. Thank you, Dr. Shekhar. Um, this is Rose Du. First of all, I'd like to congratulate you and the other co-authors on this uh, really commendable and timely work, uh, especially in this era of endovascular therapy, as you have mentioned. is particularly important to not lose sight of open surgery as a safe and effective and sometimes the, the best means of treating, treating some complex aneurysms. I have um, a few questions, uh, at least a couple of questions, particular uh, to the study. Um, as Dr. Brio da Silva mentioned earlier, one interesting finding in the paper is that the preoperative modified Rankin score is increased, uh, in fact, in the post-flow diversion era. Now, one would normally associate endovascular therapy as being preferential in patients with poor clinical conditions, so you might expect the surgical patients to have better or, in other words, lower modified Rankin score in the post-flow diversion era. Why do you think accounts for this trend, which is a little bit counterintuitive? I think this is a very, very good question, and that uh, captures the essence of this paper, and a little bit surprising to us as well. Uh, and the answer is that uh, surgical treatment remains a treatment of last resort. You know, the, the surgeon You know, we have a team that is, uh, has uh, uh, people, all of us uh, do endovascular surgery, although I, I do the least, and then, of course, uh, uh, three of us do microsurgery, although I do the more complex ones. Uh, the problem is that uh, when patients fail endovascular therapy, then we, we have to fall back on microsurgery. We, we just need to fix the patients. So the patients do not have a choice in many cases. Uh, but also in the, out in the community, uh, this is going on constantly. So the, the efforts in the community are to treat a number of uh, aneurysms with endovascular treatment first. And then uh, when they fail, they are referred for surgery. So I think these may be the two reasons why Uh, we have seen uh, a worse uh, clinical condition, or M as uh, measured by modified ranking scale, preoperatively in our post-flow diversion era. And I think that this is a trend, unfortunately, that is going to continue. Uh, and uh, because the numbers are getting smaller, we are going to have to spend more time training microsurgeons uh, for the future. Great. Now, another question I have, another thing that uh, is somewhat surprising also is the trend in terms of the location or, or maybe lack of. Now, I think in most institutions, pipelines or flow diverters have been in increasingly and, you know, much more commonly used in uh, aneurysms in the ICA location, cavernous aneurysms, paraclinoid aneurysms as such. So one might expect uh, that in the flow diverter, Era, the post-flow diversion era, that many more ICA aneurysms would have, would have been treated that way, which I think might then translate to fewer uh, bypasses being done for those aneurysms. And yet in your distribution of aneurysms, in fact, it, it hasn't changed pre- or post-flow diversion. The characteristics of aneurysms uh, have not changed much. Why do you think that is? Is there something about the kinds of aneurysms being treated or the patients who are being treated? Uh, again, this is a, a very, very good question. Um, w there are two answers to this. Uh, the first answer is that 
at least in the beginning of our flow diversion experience, we were more conservative in treating only those aneurysms that were uh, on label, meaning uh, mainly paraclanoid aneurysms. We are not treating a lot of patients with uh, supra-cavernous uh, or supra-ophthalmic aneurysms. Uh, and also, we were not treating a lot of ruptured aneurysms. Uh, I think there's been a gradual change in the philosophy where even with ruptured aneurysms, uh, folks uh, around the country, you know, the world, even in our center, uh, sometimes we go in and uh, we uh, place coils in the aneurysm, accepting partial uh, treatment, and then with the idea of coming back and uh, placing flow diverters uh, later on. Um, if When we looked uh, back uh, after your very interesting question, what we found is that uh, in the post-floor diversion era, there is a greater number of uh, C4 aneurysms as compared to the pre-floor diversion era, and also a greater proportion of uh, ruptured aneurysms. So that, that might explain the discrepancy uh, that, that's observed. And I think this is still unfortunately, an evolving paradigm. Thank you. Um, I think we can, uh, Dr. Morav or Pace have also have some questions for you. Yeah, um, thank you all very much. And uh, <clears throat> thank you to the authors of the paper for presenting a very, uh, very timely and important question as we're transitioning into a more, uh, as endovascular having a more and more prominent role in the treatment of these complex aneurysms. You, Dr. Shaker, had already touched a little bit on my next question, but um, I was wondering, in terms of the uh, our evolving capability to treat these simple and complex aneurysms with endovascular techniques, and how that is, you know, becoming increasingly prevalent, how are is the next generation of young cerebrovascular surgeons going to be well trained enough to be able to handle kind of the next wave of these complex aneurysms that will require open treatment? once the older generation of cerebrovascular surgeons has retired, and how do we as kind of the younger generation get prepared to deal with these aneurysms surgically when we finally do have to do something complex that involves a, a bypass, for instance? I think this is a, just a, a tremendously important and a really great question, and we are constantly grappling with this issue. The first thing I would say is that we need to preserve open surgery. So even though at the present time in the U.S., uh, open surgery uh, perhaps is being done uh, anywhere from 30 to 40% of the time, maybe in some centers as high as 50%, uh, I think it is important to preserve open surgery in uh, major centers and to provide fellowship training uh, to uh, candidates that are interested in open surgery. And I personally feel that uh, a minimum of two years of fellowship training is required, but that depends on the uh, prior experience of the individual. So that's number one. The second thing is that uh, it is important to have um, bypass courses and uh, the availability of a cadaver laboratory where and cadaver models where we can uh, perform bypasses or treat aneurysms uh, so that our uh, fellows and residents have the opportunity to, to learn constantly. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, even though in the U.S. the uh, cost equation may be 
somewhere equivalent in uh, many other countries, such as China or India or developing countries, um, uh, microsurgery is by far cheaper. And if one looks at, uh, you know, patients uh, that come to a place like ours, you know, we, we're in Seattle, we draw from the five-state area. Number of patients come from a great distance. They're not able to come back for follow-up uh, as you would like them to. So in number of, in number of cases, microsurgery is the better choice because uh, once you treat the patient definitively, uh, and that's, uh, you know, you can not quite forget follow-up, but at least you can relax regarding follow-up. But as endovascular treatment, as we know, the recurrence rate can be anywhere from 30 to 50%. So they, they definitely need more follow-up. Uh, so I think that we have layers of uh, training. The first is just being exposed to microsurgical anatomy uh, of the basal structures, especially vascular and uh, uh, tumors. The second thing is to be exposed to uh, microsurgery for uh, treatment of aneurysms in general. And the third being uh, the exposure to bypasses, obviously uh, both low flow bypasses and high flow bypasses. Uh, so I think that uh, summarizes where we are headed today. Now the question is, should a cerebrovascular surgeon be trained in both endovascular and microsurgery? Yes. Uh, I think they should be the, for, the, for the future. However, I do believe uh, that uh, when you finish training, gradually you will sort yourself out. That means that you're going to be an expert endovascular surgeon or you're going to be an expert microsurgeon. Uh, you're not going to be uh, a real expert in both. Uh, I may be wrong on this, but I think that this um, is a, a prevailing view of a number of people. I hope Thank that you. answers your uh, question. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Shekhar. Dr. Pace, do you have um, a question for Dr. Shekhar as well? I, I do. Thank you. And I, I'd like to take a moment and thank uh, the authors as well for their work on this topic. Um, so in your paper, you described posterior circulation aneurysms that were treated and uh, some of which were not fully occluded because of proximal occlusion as opposed to trapping. Um, do you have any suggestions or thoughts on how to manage these patients um, when the aneurysm is not fully obliterated, uh, continues to grow, or um, the patient becomes um, increasingly symptomatic? Um, do you have a management paradigm that you currently use? Yes, uh, that's, uh, again, an excellent question. If you think about posterior circulation aneurysms, uh, where endovascular stenting, uh, I think, is uh, currently used uh, widely is perhaps vertebral aneurysms and uh, uh, PCA, uh, P2, P3 uh, aneurysms. Now, when it comes to both uh, mid and upper basilar aneurysms, which are generally fusiform aneurysms, uh, this has been a very difficult group to treat, uh, either by endovascular or microsurgical means. And the second group, of course, are giant basilar aneurysms. So let me just uh, address the giant basilar aneurysms first. Uh, in such cases, <clears throat> which uh, maybe in the past we were treating by microsurgery, uh, sometimes they were being treated with coils, but very frequently they grew. Uh, at the moment, we don't have a flow diversion stent that is appropriate for treatment of these. So uh, terminal basilar occlusion uh, is, has been used by us in a number of cases 
with the creation of a new uh, postal communicating artery or a new bypass, uh, we have, uh, I think, about seven of these cases. And in one patient, there was continued growth of the aneurysm. And what we did was the bypass was very mature at this point. We uh, went uh, uh, with an end of a micro uh, catheter through the bypass, and we were able to place a stent across the uh, basilar bifurcation and then coil off the remaining uh, aneurysm that seems to work very well for that particular patient. Now, coming to mid uh, and upper basilar fusiform aneurysms, this is a group where we had, uh, I've tried uh, different techniques, uh, uh, bypass for the uh, distal vessel, uh, namely the PCA, followed by uh, proximal occlusion um, and or trapping. And my current paradigm is similar to what you saw in the paper, namely, uh, first occluding the dominant vertebral artery, and then uh, after some time, uh, here, this patient, we had spontaneous, but also going back and either doing endovascular or microsurgical occlusion. Now, uh, floor diversion um, for this group of aneurysms has been generally unsuccessful, although the group in Buffalo has recently reported making 3D printed uh, stents and using those the main problem with treating these aneurysms successfully is just there is a uh, instant leak uh, which keeps the aneurysm open. Um, <clears throat> I don't think we have a complete answer for this uh, particular group of aneurysms. Um, I uh, have not seen, after our treatment paradigm, a continued enlargement of these aneurysms. Uh, so I, I feel that uh, this could be a technique that will work. The main problem, of course, you have to think about are the perforators that come off the uh, mid and upper basilar artery. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Um, do we have any more questions for uh, Dr. Shaker regarding this paper? Uh, if not, uh, then I want to thank the authors and the faculty for this very interesting discussion and presentation. And I also want to thank the audience for the interest. This concludes the Congress of Neurological Surgeons Journal Club podcast. Point to critical aspects of our paper, and on behalf of all the authors, a, a thank you all. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Strong work. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, everyone.